I'm amazed how many people own stocks. Welcome to the Playing Footsie Podcast. My name's Paul, and each episode, me and the lads get together to talk about the stocks, stock market news, and finance in general. Quick disclaimer, you shouldn't consider anything in this podcast as personal financial advice. If you need such advice, go to a financial advisor. And please remember, when investing in any form, your capital is at risk. So sit back, relax, and let the lads fill you in with all the stock market news of the week. The sucker's going up. Welcome to the Playing Footsie Show. I'm Steve W. Steve D's here with me this week. How's your week been, Steve? Uh, not too bad, Steve. Um, in the market, it's been um, fairly fairly positive so far. I think I've seen a lot of people today in the Discord saying that they're down a little bit, uh, but I've had three straight um, three, three straight good days, so I'm cheery, uh, which is which is nice. Uh, how, how about you? That is nice. It's Wednesday, by the way, if you're working out when uh, Steve's been having his his nice little run into. Uh, or we're recording this on Wednesday. Um, I haven't been paying much attention to how mine's been going on, to be honest. It's been quite a kind of chaotic time here at the moment. Uh, by the time this podcast goes out, we will be 11 days to my um, due date. And as you can see, call sign Burgundy isn't here this week. So uh, look out for it in two weeks' time when it'll just be Steve talking about stocks by himself uh, for an hour or so, running down things he's interested in. But yeah, this week's been all right. I've been a bit unwell, which has taken a bit out of me in terms of just having energy to look at stuff and think about stuff. But leave things where they are, and, and broadly speaking, they're they're all ticking along okay, I think. Um, okay, so this week's show is pretty busy. We've got some news from Target, uh, which is a US retailer. We've got some news from Apple. We've got a couple more stocks from you. But uh, first of all. Exciting stuff in the world of Amazon. Uh, I own a lot more Amazon shares than I did at the start of the week. Uh, you, I assume, do as well, Steve, unless you've done something really, really weird. Um, Amazon's been splitting its stock. Uh, are you excited? Um, yeah, stock splits. I think there's nothing really to um, get too excited uh, for. I mean, it is good for people who play options. Um, there is a there is a, a net benefit to to. You know, when you have to buy in 100 share packages, it's much easier when the share price is 100 and something rather than 3,000 and something or 2,000 and something that it got down to. But stock split, Steve, is that something that excites you? Very excites me. I always like seeing these things happen because, you know, there's not much to see some of the time with these um, stocks. And it split me to a level that I kind of find annoying. Now, I had three shares and at three shares, I was sort of thinking... Well, psychologically, I'm fine with this idea. It's never going to be a massive number of Amazon shares that I own. I'm never going to get to 100 or something like that with at those sorts of uh, levels. Um, I've now been split up to um, 60, so it was a 20 for one. So your three go away, you get 60 the other way. Uh, and that means that now I feel like I either want to be at 50 or 100, and I feel like I don't want to sell anything here in Amazon. So I feel like that's given me something to work towards a little bit now, which is kind of nice and exactly the kind of thing that I hate myself for paying attention to uh, one way or another. 75 not an acceptable number? 75 is a better number than 60. Um, 70 is a better number than 60 because it's closer to another number. Um, but yeah, I mean, so it's a roundish number, right? It's not a, It ends in a zero, so that's something. 75 would be a nice place to arrive at, although that's still a reasonable chunk from here. Uh, and then eventually we'll work towards 100. But that's the rough plan. I, I've been desperately scrambling this week to try and find some reason to be excited about this from an investor perspective. But all I can see is that you have to work really, really hard to find a reason that this matters to an investor. So, I mean, fundamentally, it feels like there are reasons why this might matter. I mean, they were saying on Motley Fool um, at the start of the week that... There are people who, it is a point of psychological fact, will buy this stock because it's at 100 and something where they wouldn't have bought it at 3,000 and something. And if you don't believe that, you are kidding yourself and you are um, ignoring what is, you know, price relevant information here. And I agree with that entirely. I think there are definitely people who will do that. As you pointed out, it becomes easier to buy or sell call options if you're liable for 100 of them rather than at that price rather than 100 of them at the higher price. But all of this to me just feels very, very like a good way to distinguish actually whether you're an investor or a trader, uh, more or less, because this is just finding grist for the reason of, at the middle of someone else will buy this off me uh, and they're more likely to buy it off me for more uh, because I can sell them a bit at 100 rather than a bit at a fraction of 3000 or something like that. Uh, and there's nothing wrong with that game. Uh, as far as I can tell, I don't really mind people that want to trade this thing and pay attention to that for that reason. 
the only fundamental reason I could see, and it doesn't get me very far on Amazon at all, is that if it does get a share price push, it becomes easier to raise capital by issuing stock. Um, I, that's a fact, and I can see it. So I can see that's a fact, and I can see that is a fundamental investor-related fact. Uh, that seems to me to be good. I can't see that it matters very much because I don't see Amazon having an equity raise anytime soon. Uh, and I think I'd be sort of vaguely disappointed if they did. Um, unless there was something really, really strange. There'd have to be some sort of mega merge going on there, but I suspect that would get blocked out by antitrust anyway. But that was the hmm. only kind of fundamental reason I could see there, Steve. Yeah, pretty much. Speaking of mega merges, did you see that um, Roku have been discussing internally about Netflix acquiring them? Yeah, that was interesting to me for a number of reasons. I was surprised that that was the kind of thing that I was seeing, uh, for what it's worth. I mean, how did that get out? Do you know? Uh, apparently it's just internal employee discussions that have leaked uh, outside of the company. Mm. So Bloomberg have reported it. They're not normally too wrong with things like this. Um, and you would expect Netflix would come out and say uh, soon, if it's not happening, uh, that no, that's not on our radar as is expected of companies at this kind of size and scale. Um, did you did you know that Roku was actually sort of founded while uh, Anthony Wood still worked at Netflix? No. That's an interesting thing. So about, about I think, well, when Roku started, however many years ago that was, uh, he was um, one of the execu executives um, at Netflix, and he proposed the idea of uh, a Roku-style company to Netflix. They said, uh, we don't want to do that as, as part of, you know, as part of ourselves, but if you want to go and do it, here's five million to set up your company and, and go away and, and do it. So Netflix was a pretty large shareholder of, of Roku for a brief period, uh, and I think they sold really, really early before before Roku actually took off. Uh, Netflix had had uh, offloaded their their shares, so uh, it would be a strange one to bring it back into the fold. Um, but they're not bringing it back into the fold for the reasons Roku split off. I guess Roku split off to be this connected TV. Uh, set-top box kind of system and uh, roku is very much now the connected tv advertising player uh, of the future i think nobody really wants the manufacturing arm so i guess we'll see i think netflix will will probably quite like to work with roku um i don't think roku's at a particularly uh, expensive price at the moment so it could be an interesting acquisition you own both stocks right i do yep would you like to see this happen uh I don't have an issue with it at the, at the moment. I, I worry that we end up with a scenario where we have a, a slower-growing company buying a fast-growing company and it doesn't get the love it deserves and it becomes a slow-growing company, a la Livongo and Teladoc in, mm -hmm. in a way. Uh, that's my, that would be my primary concern, but I think there's a lot of synergies here and I think there's... I mean, obviously, um, Anthony Wood at one point wanted to work for Netflix, so um, I don't think it's beyond the realms of possibility. No, I don't think it's beyond the realms of possibility. Yeah, it's an interesting thing to kind of keep an eye on a little bit. It's not; uh, it's very much early stage, and it's you know uh, speculative from what I understand of it. I was interested in how it got out because if it had been announced in any way officially, that would be material information, and you can be in trouble for getting that kind of thing wrong, unless. You're Elon Musk, in which case you can do whatever the hell you want uh, in terms of disclosing material information, taking it back, and so on and so forth. Because, I mean, he just plays with the SEC for fun, as far as I can see on this. And I, and I enjoy watching it, but I'm staying well out of the way. Hmm. Uh, but that's uh, quite interesting, and I guess something that we'll be looking at following over now, especially you, we're looking at following over the next few, I guess, weeks and months. Google has a stock split coming up. Uh, we're both Google shareholders. Are you excited? Um, I'm as excited as I was with the Amazon split. Uh, mm. I don't think I'm out of the two. I'm I'm not in a rush to buy um, Google at the moment, though. I think Amazon is much higher up on my on my list of things to buy. Um, again, I'm uh, I'm not particularly excited by the stock split in, in the sense of that. Realistically, I won't gain anything from this other than a handful more shares at a, a reduced price. But um, I guess there's. There is plenty of evidence, at least from recent memory, of companies of this kind of size and interest starting to creep back up when uh, when when they get a little bit more liquidity in their in their stock. But yeah, I, I guess I'm no more excited. Steve, are you any more excited about Google than you were Amazon? No, but I haven't mentioned the important point on either of them yet. I guess, which is that we might get listed in the Dow. Hmm. Mm. It's funny I mentioned that a few shows ago, didn't I? That I said that if they were to split, it would be something to do with the Dow, and I seem to remember. 
Paul saying, I don't think they'd really care about that. And it turns out they maybe did. Uh, well, to be fair, I think Amazon's is more about, I've said it before, I think it's more about the share incentive plans for their staff. I think that makes perfect sense for them to then buy back a limited amount and they can pay out people who uh, might not necessarily need a whole share of, of pre-split Amazon. Uh, they can definitely get a whole share of post-split Amazon. And I guess that giving your workers a share of the company would appease, uh, well, it's not a union-busting tactic, but it's a union-busting tactic, isn't it? Yeah, I, I thought they were busting their unions by basically making large numbers of them redundant um, or, or something like that. That's why they like agency staff, isn't it? Because mm. uh, you can keep agency staff for a period of time and, and you can bin them off with very little protection. So, um, But mind you, in America, you can bin people off for absolutely no reason. So uh, I don't think it's too much different there. Um, yeah, I guess that's why they're splitting. Um, but um, anything else you want to add to that? No, the Google split is kind of interesting to me a little bit. I don't know as being part of the Dow has much to uh, do with anything. It might be. It's as good a reason as any, I suppose. But I'll be keeping an eye on that one around the time, and I suppose I'll be pleased if the price goes up. Like, Google's one I'd like to buy more of, to be honest. But like you, I prefer Amazon at the kind of current levels. I think the splits are the same size, right? They're both 20 for one. And pre the Amazon split at the start of this week, I think they were trading at very close to the same share price uh, with Amazon having come down quite a bit and Google having come up quite a bit. So it's not so long ago that Amazon was kicking around 3,000 and Google was kicking around 1,800, I think. And they've both moved significantly nearer to each other, uh, from what I can see. I mean, before the uh, split anyway. So they might end up at similar share prices again, making them ideal for Dow indexing. Yeah, I was going to say one of the things I guess uh, we should probably keep an eye on is um, a lot of sort of the retailers in this space are having inventory issues and, and issues with uh, with. Uh, getting especially getting rid of inventory that they don't necessarily uh, want to have spaces at a premium in these kind of these kind of places one thing amazon has a lot of is space at the moment uh, to the point where they're actually looking to rent some of it out they've, they've probably mm. got too much so that's a good thing really because amazon now has the space it's built now i mean it's upkeep so i mean that won't hinder uh, amazon's balance sheet too much it's an unfortunate error um but it's something that they can grow into. And the good thing about that now is that you shouldn't see the massive CapEx spends on warehouses. You'll still see it being spent on other things. But the the, the plant and the property, uh, we should see a cool down on that for at least a brief period of time, Steve. Yeah, which would be very nice for someone like Paul, uh, who very much dislikes it when companies spend the money that they make on, well, things that are not dividends, basically. So this kind of leads us to the thing that's next on our list. Actually, you mentioned the retail stuff. Uh, that's basically the news from Target. Uh, they've been um, announcing, I mean, they announced that their earnings call, that they were having some inventory issues. And they've announced since then that they've got even more inventory issues, basically. And they're going to have to cut things back even further and basically dump some of their inventory at sort of fairly fire sale prices. So anyone in the States, they're a US retailer who's after a new telly or some patio furniture or something like that. Uh, they could well be in business over at Target. Um, this caught your eye from what I saw of it. I had some thoughts around this, but um, what were you seeing here? Well, it, it's interesting to me because it's, it's a big American uh, well-loved corporation that's dropped 30%. We just don't see that very often. Um, so, yeah, it caught my eye. Uh, I said to you, at what point do you get interested in Target? At the moment now, I still think it's a little bit of a tricky thing because I was just looking at... Um, they, this this catch-up call that they've had essentially where they've said that margins are dropping from five to two percent uh so a pe ratio at 13.03 is obviously based on today's earnings uh but when you're factoring in that you're not going to get it at today's earnings you're going to get it at future earnings that pe starts to look uh quite a bit more expensive mm -hmm. and quite rapidly as well but on the flip side if you believe that this company soon goes to back to five and then maybe on to six percent margins you're getting a pretty decent company. You're getting a pretty decent yield. Uh, you're getting a, a, a you know, a, a much loved um, blue chip American um, sort of style war, I guess you could call it. Um, is that something that would interest you, Steve? Probably not. Um, in the, I feel like I don't know good from bad in terms of US retailers. The kind of classic to a Home Depot and Lowe's, and I really no idea what I'm doing trying to pick one from the other here. I know a friend of the show, Boss Hog, has some. Uh, quite firm preferences for Home Depot. I mean, he probably looks at that a bit more than I have, but I feel like 
Target isn't, as far as I'm aware, something that has any kind of operation. I'm not sure it has anything outside the US, but it has nothing over here, as far as I can tell. Um, and I think that gives me enough to think I'm going to want to stay away from it, because straightforward stuff like retailers, are, uh, there's plenty of them knocking around here that I can kind of have a look at. Um, I had about three thoughts on the Target news, though. One is that it did shape my view of retailers in general. I always thought of retailing especially kind of Target-style retailing, as reasonably straightforward and reasonably unrewarding as a result. So I thought sort of low margins, quite hard to grow anything much because demand is going to be pretty steady across um, time and so on, and you can't really sell people more stuff and you can't really push prices very much either. But it's not that difficult. Um, and I'm now coming to revisit the not-that-difficult bit. Uh, basically, because it turns out you have to do things like have inventory when you kind of need it um, and you need to get the right things in the right places and so on. And that turns out to be a trickier operation than I might have previously given it credit for. And I can sort of see what's been going on there, right? We've had a lot of supply chain problems, which means that people are trying to get hold of as much stuff as they possibly can. And then all of a sudden demand starts to shrink down a bit and you've got kind of oversupply and the wrong supply and all these sorts of things. And this makes it sound like actually retailing is a sort of more difficult environment than I thought it was. The the strength of these companies is their um their their supply chains and their abilities to project uh to predict what inventory they need to be able to sell to customers. That that's where the moat mm. really is for these kind of companies, and that that gives you two issues with um with Target or Target as it's known um in 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 America, um <laughs> is that. The supply chain has been whacked. We know that it's been difficult for them to get things, and now their inventory, uh, their their well, their, their inv inventory predictions were were all wrong. They actually said that twenty percent of um, of its inventory was was comp uh, was items that the company wishes it never had, not that it wishes it could get rid of, that it hadn't bought in the first place. So that's uh, that's problematic. Um, and like you say, Steve, I, I would expect some. I would expect this to be a one or two quarter blip because essentially what, what they're going to do is they're going to try and, and strip out uh, this, this bad inventory. So this is going to be a fire sale. It's going to look awful mm. uh, for a quarter or two. But then I would expect a return to normality. I mean, we're not talking about a, 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 a crap CEO here. We're talking about, you know, somebody who's who's led Target from strength to strength. Uh, although he is 64, potentially coming to the end of his tenure, uh, I guess this wouldn't be a position that you'd want to hand it on to somebody else. What do you think? Yeah, that's partly why I go for the idea that I think retailing is hard rather than Target is badly run. I don't think this is... I think this is just a really challenging environment for that good management is finding hard. Um, and you're allowed to find things hard and still be a good manager. So I don't think this is the kind of thing you'd want to hand on. I think he'll want to see his company through this. And I think he'll be as well-placed as anybody to do that. So... It might be a case here where this stuff is over and done with and is a real loss but is out the way fairly quickly and they can get the ship righted. That would be good. I've seen this kind of thing before once uh, in my own very limited investing career and the case I saw of this was Boston Beer, effectively, who bet big on hard seltzer. Hard seltzer just went out of fashion, more or less, and they ended up with loads of the stuff that they had to more or less destroy and have a massive inventory write down. And that share price went through the floor. Um, and this isn't like a goodwill write down for what it's worth, at least not in my head anyway. This is real stuff um, that you spent money on and is sat on your um, balance sheet and is tangible uh, in an important way. Your inventory is your um, part of your tangible assets. And that, to me, does feel kind of more like a genuine loss here rather than writing down some goodwill that was never there, but is basically an admission that maybe we got an investment wrong in the past. Business is still in the same shape. Now we just don't have the stuff to sell anymore. Um, so yeah, I had kind of... My other two thoughts were both related uh, on this. The first, they were both to do with the economy more generally. One is that I worry a little bit about slowing consumer spending in the US with the way that Target is getting rid of stuff. The other thought is if they end up fire-sailing this stuff, that might help uh, with the Fed's plan to bring down inflation a bit because prices are going to come down kind of organically uh, somewhat, and that's going to mean... I, I'm not sure quite how that reads into the uh, the inflation print, but I worry that... But I wonder that basically a general excess inventory sell-off uh, might be a useful thing for them to try and help bring down inflation. That might be nice. Potentially, but the, the sounds of it, this is really stuff that is of, is of very little worth to them. Mm -hmm. um, so they think... Um, 
essentially it sounds like it's TVs, kitchen appliances, um, garden furniture, literally, yeah. yeah, loaded up on that kind of stuff. And and now we're getting to um, you know a summer season where perhaps those things might not be getting bought. And uh, you know, in the winter season, are you, are you really are you really shipping small kitchen appliances and and things like that? I don't know. It's a tricky old time for this kind of. Uh, this kind of stuff. I also saw that they're also cancelling um, they're cancelling orders with with suppliers as well who are halfway through production of things. Uh, they've ha- they're going to have to uh, pay these vendors uh, for the work that they've done. They have to pay for the raw materials as well. So even if they don't necessarily take delivery of it, so it's a very tricky time. I certainly wouldn't want to be uh, wouldn't want to be managing it through this. Uh, there was some positives though that I, I did see. Uh, they're, they're talking about adding five new distribution centers over the next two years. Um, so obviously there's a, another bit of CapEx coming. Um, but, <laughs> I mean, it is nice to see them just getting getting prepared a, a little bit more for sort of the digital world that's, that's coming ahead. I think in America, e-commerce was pretty, you know, it, it was accretive, but it was pretty slow. Uh, and then the pandemic changed all that. But with a bit of luck, They'll go back to that creative kind of demand again. We'll maybe have a little drop off, and then we'll, um, you know, that gives companies like Target chance to build these distribution centers in, and compete. Because as much as we love Amazon and we're shareholder Steve, I don't think we think it's sensible that Amazon controlled all of e-commerce. Um, it would be nice to see some competition. Yeah, I agree with that, and I, neither of us is super super enthusiastic about the amazon e-commerce thing i like it more than you do i think but you've long thought that i could happily spin that bit and leave you with aws and you'd be Mm. um perfectly happy with what you had there i'd sell the retail arm day one yep i thought you might um so moving off of uh target then in that case uh next up we've got apple uh and the news from there i was going to say the kind of linking idea i had here was that i guess target's trying to write itself in time for q4 uh is going to be the kind of important thing for them because um fourth quarter is where i have a lot of sales and around black friday and all that kind of thing apple i was looking at earlier also is massively cyclical more so than other mobile phone uh companies for what it's worth and they also sell an awful lot of their stuff in q4 interesting fact that iphone's mainly for christmas uh, it turns out but uh it's not christmas yet they've been at the worldwide developers conference and they've got some news they've got news of a new ios um operating system that looks much more customizable than before an m2 chip that has a lot of people excited we can come back to that in a little bit a buy now pay later initiative which caught paul's eye because as paul wanted us to say uh, it turns out that aapl is going for bmpl uh anyway um enough of that rubbish so there's from what i saw of it uh and the reactions i was seeing not much in the way of ar and vr which sort of disappointed people and they were talking as though there was nothing deeply revolutionary here steve what did you see here well bad news for um matterport shareholders i guess i saw apple's room plan and i thought that was really really impressive for definitely for small scale applications so basically um what Apple have developed is uh, a way of you um, you boot up the app and you can uh, point the phone at um, whatever it is that you're trying to map and then you just slowly spin around and the uh, the room plan starts to draw all the features of it. So in the, in the video, I'm just watching it as we talk. It's drawing a, a kitchen sink and then some uh, upper and lower cabinets with a, with a wet top and, and it's doing a fantastic job by the looks of it. It, it is a really interesting piece of kit. They're giving it away as a sort of an AR creation tool, so it'll be able for people to use in the um, in the uh, app development um, studio that that Apple release every year. Uh, but it looks to me like a very good way for at least the uh, you know things like hospitality apps and real estate and e-commerce. It looks like a very good way for small scale shops to do very good mapping of what they have. Matterport to me has more specialist tools. It needs a more high-powered camera. It looks like it's better for the heavy industrial kind of things, but for the light stuff, I think this could eat some of Matterport's pudding. Have you had a look at it, Steve? I had a little look at the uh, the tech behind it, um, and I, for those of us who aren't in this space in quite the same way that you are, this I, this I associate as being your day job, uh, at least partly. Um, but, uh, well, something to do with pictures of houses. I anyway. do it with tips <laughs> and lasers. 
<laughs> All right, fine. Tapes and lasers version of this then. Uh, the main place I've come across Matterport is uh, someone who's trying to move house at the moment, having a look at kind of places on right move. Some of them have a nice kind of Matterport uh, constructed tour through them, I think, or something like that. Uh, that's the kind of thing that you're thinking this might be particularly good for from Apple. Uh, yeah, Airbnb, uh, mm-hmm. right move, that kind of thing. Yep. Um, it, yeah, what the American versions of obviously Zillow and what have you as well. So yeah, that's what I think it'd be there for. That's interesting. And that's something that appears to be going under the radar a little bit here as well. Um, Apple, impressive outfit, aren't they? Uh, I mean, they launched their new M2 chip as well, which has a lot of chip-related people excited. The thing that kind of caught my eye here is that they recently, of course, moved off of Intel's um, chips. They've got a 5 nanometer chip. The M1 was a 5 nanometer too. But it sound, and we're not a tech product show, so we won't go on too much about um, exciting new tech laptops and so on. But the new MacBook Air was kind of catching my eye a little bit too. And it looked like a, a quite a nice thing with their new chip in it. Uh, it feels to me like I thought chip design was supposed to be or at least Intel were making it look incredibly difficult. Uh, and I don't associate Apple as being a chip design company. I associate them as being a kind of consumer products company. Uh, they're making this look quietly easy, from what I can see of it. Well, I think it's it's different, isn't it? Because Apple are making something incredibly specific. So they mm. have a, a, a sort of design function in mind, and they know exactly what software they're going to layer on top of it. Whereas Intel and your AMDs and your NVIDIAs, they have to be a little bit more broad in the way that they design it. But... You know, let's not let's not beat around the bush here. Amazon, Google, um, uh, and of course Apple. Now they're in chips in a really, really big way, and uh, you know they're making they're making strides here. I mean, the, these guys are fabulous. They're not they're not actually mm. physically making the chips. They are still just in the designing phase. I don't think they would get into the fa- into the fab phase. Uh, Personally, I think TSMC is uh, has got that pretty covered. But uh, interesting what they're coming up with, and the more experience they get at, at designing chips, the the, the better they're going to get at it. And that could be worrying for your, your your major chip designers. Yeah, I really don't want to see either Amazon or Google. I don't own Apple, but I well, I'm sorry, I own Apple through Berkshire Hathaway and in some um, uh, ETFs and stuff, but. I, I wouldn't like if I were an Apple shareholder directly, as it were, to see them enthusiastically, enthusiastically getting into manufacturing chips. That doesn't seem like a. It seems like a very capital-intensive process, and Apple generates a lot of cash. It could probably afford to do it, but I, I'm not sure. I'd rather they left that to. Well, they can leave it to Intel if they want. They want to get into manufacturing or more into manufacturing than they currently are. That's really exciting, though, isn't it? Apple uh, and the Apple Pay stuff is going buy now, pay later. Um, they're going to disrupt things like uh, Klarna and whatever the other BMPL things are. That's good, huh? Uh, I guess so. Um, it dep- I guess it depends on what you really, uh, w- whether you really care about those things. I'm sure some of our listeners have accidentally got themselves into some buy now pay later companies. Um, Affem didn't seem to be very impressed with it. Uh, they they were uh, they were nonplussed in their response to to Apple's entry. And um, uh, the shareholders were not a firm, fell quite a bit on the day. Um, I guess it's one of those things, isn't it? It's just another value-added service in the Apple ecosystem. I would assume this is going down the same routes as the credit card, i.e. Goldman Sachs are going to do the vast majority of the processing of it and handling of it. And I think, I mean, I don't see the Apple card anywhere in the UK. I don't know what it's like in the US. I don't think I've ever seen one. Um, so the penetration here must be pretty low if it's even released in the uk um i haven't looked I at just... this in the last several years but when i did look it wasn't because it was a metal mm. one and i had a phase of when i was much much younger of wanting a metal card and i thought the apple one was actually quite competitively priced from what i remember priced in terms of fees and so on and so forth uh anyway i, I was card. no apple anything user at that point so that was a non-starter and it was also not available in the uk when i checked yeah, so I guess it's, I mean, Apple look like they're going to um, expand this out over their, uh, not just their own products, but as part of the Apple wallet as well. So, um, you know, that, that hurts a lot of companies. It hurts, it hurts Monzo, where we are in the UK, Steve, one of our investments. Um, Monzo have raised their own Flex program, so any competition with that obviously, obviously does that. I always wonder with Apple just how far they can push before regulators say look no more you're not allowed to offer that you don't you're not allowed to be a bank you know what <laughs> i mean you're not allowed to be this you're not allowed to crush matterport overnight um 
I just wonder, you know, I wonder how that goes. I was looking the other day and I saw, that obviously, since the privacy um, privacy updates and they've crushed quite a few small businesses and they've, they've caused a lot of small business panic and a lot of advertising-related panic in that industry with their, their privacy function. And the other day they were advertising that you could turn on uh, personalised ads that Apple would serve for you. And you just think to yourself... I mean, what a load of bollocks. Do you know what I mean? It's so vulturistic, if that's a word. But it's a word <laughs> I'm going to use. Um, it's just, I, I don't know. The word I used on the Discord was scummy. And I think it is kind of scummy because they're shitting on l- little businesses. They're stealing, what, uh, saying, you know, we're doing this because of users' privacy. And then they're introducing their own kind of personalized ads. I mean, I think that's really scummy, to be honest. I'm going to go with the word scummy. What, what do you think, Steve? I like vulturistic. It's one of those interesting things because I like things that are not words, but I still know what they mean. Um, hmm. And uh, that's something that appeals Vulture-like? to me. Vulture-like? Uh, no, 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 I like vulturistic. Vulture-like sounds like it might be two words with a hyphen between them, and I'm okay with that's that. That's what I was thinking, yeah. Yeah. That's what I was thinking. Uh, but vulturistic is something that I think is not a word, but still has a meaning. Hmm. Figure that out. Um, so, yeah, I tend to think that uh, Apple's always been big into its privacy, and I think that's going to be something that they're going to use fairly effectively to strong arm off political pressure, uh, one way or another. They've always been about these sorts of things. They've, you know, they've stood up to authorities before on this kind of thing to do with unlocking terrorist iPhones and so on and so forth, and flatly refusing and pointing out that oh, people have rights to. Privacy. I dislike it. What it's worth when corporations start going on into uh, moral matters that they don't understand very well. Not that I understand them perfectly, but I happen to know they're more complicated than they think they are. Uh, Twitter and free speech is another good example of this. But I do wonder whether this is going to give them uh, enough to kind of fend off uh, a bunch of comp- of um, antitrust uh, attention with, and I think that will be kind of interesting to see here i mean they run their business in a really really interesting way i was looking at them sort of fairly recently because uh, paul was keen on discussing bmpl and so on and the more i look at them the more i think they appear to be attracting a lot of negativity around the stock at the moment for reasons that have nothing to do with what you were describing but just general supply chain issues because china lockdowns and weakening consumer demand and the new iPhone coming out has a lot of quite expensive components in it and will that sell as well and so on. I kind of think this is a pretty powerful looking business and I don't just mean in the kind of it can push people around sense. It generates a lot more cash than I thought it did uh, for what it's worth. I thought they were just basically taking on debt left and right to do buybacks with because debt was cheap. And that's true to an extent, but I'm still trying to figure out this net cash neutral thing because I can't interpret their balance sheet properly. Uh, Not because... I'm incredibly bad at it, but because I struggle with some of the terms that they use, I'm not quite sure what gross cash is because it's not a line on their balance sheet, but that's the thing they use. And I'm not quite sure what term debt means, and I'm not entirely sure what they consider to be balancing against what in net cash neutral. But I'm not sure. I kind of, I got vaguely attracted to this stock when I looked at it. It doesn't catch your eye. feels like a poll stock to me, to be honest. Yeah, well, I was just going to say, let, let us not move on before we let everybody know that it has a 0.62% dividend <laughs> yield. Um, Paul would not Paul would not approve of us missing that. Um, I, I think, look, I think Apple's a fantastic business. The, the, my only sort of bugbear with it is, is do I want to pay a 24p ratio for a fairly slow-growing company? Um, which has fantastic earnings, but it's not a company I'm in a... It's not a company I'm in a rush to buy. Steve, you started playing drums when I said P ratio. I've written the same. I thought I knew where you were going to go, and you didn't quite go there. You said, uh, do I want to buy a 24 PE ratio? And I thought that sentence was going to end when I can buy Google at 22. Um, and that was what I was thinking. That's what I've written down, basically, which is where I thought you were going with that sentence. So I thought, oh, he's, he's on me. Um, but... I was thinking that's the main thing that stops me on Apple at the moment. Not because there's anything wrong with Apple, but because Google is sat right there. And Apple has been using its excess cash to do buybacks, and I don't mind that at all. Um, I'm not as pessimistic about that as I once was. I now think that's a perfectly sensible thing to do. Google still has that excess net cash, uh, and those buybacks have bulled Apple stock higher, which I'm fine with again. Uh, It can go like that if it wants. I was interested in the growth thing. It grows in sort of mid uh, mid to high single digits, I think, or around the sort of 10, 12% mark on a PE of 
uh, low to mid twenties, depending on whether you look forward or back, basically. Uh, I was sort of trying to work that out a little bit. So they have a market share of around 18% of the mobile phone market. And I was sort of, the issue with these things is big numbers. You get to saturation and you get to, um, there's nowhere left to go, basically. 18% of mobile phone sales, and they absolutely do uh, have somewhere to go on this. And then I started looking into it again and thought, actually, um, the main thing is there's clearly room to run there. They just don't seem to be able to run into it for some reason uh, you ought to be able to get to a bigger than 18 percent mo- uh, market share maybe that's clearly there to be had it's pretty fragmented outside of them so the biggest player here is samsung as most people know they've got about 23 percent of it and then when you get outside the top five there's about 30 percent of it and nothing else in the top five is um bigger than apple after uh, samsung is so i sort of see opportunities for growth but i'm actually kind of pessimistic about apple's ability to take them because i feel like if they were going to they would have done it by now. We've had low-cost iPhones or, or cheaper versions of iPhones and so on with the iPhone whatever it was S uh, and that kind of thing, which wasn't a very good phone by the sound of it. Just other things had better specs. I The growth is a thing for me as well, but I sort of feel like they ought to be able to do better and somehow they're not doing better. So I get um, uh, I get confused over that one, I think. I think for Apple, really, they're, they're, they're looking to grow now through the services markets, aren't they? So they're looking for the, the fitness and the music and mm. the, maybe even, to a certain degree, the Apple TV. Although I've been shown some pictures of that, and it is a very strange kind of fragmented platform, Apple TV. Um, but, yeah, uh, phones for them, they're, they're, it's just the issue is price. I mean, you can say, like, oh, look, we're doing a 500 pound iphone or, or 400 pound iphone but the fact of the matter is is that there's people out there who just want a 70 pound phone and they're not going to rush out to get an iphone even though those people who want 70 pound phones probably should be using iphone so they don't have to ring the sons every week and say what does this button mean mother <laughs> <laughs> is that staying in but, um, yeah it, maybe um but yeah, I guess that that's the main issue. But you got to remember, Apple is so much more than just a phone nowadays. I mean, the, the iPads, the MacBooks, the uh, everything else. Uh, there's growth everywhere, and I guess you're always looking for Apple as what the next flywheel would be. Is it into this sort of like strange banking buy now pay later credit card thing that they're trying to do? Is that is that the next flywheel that they're going to spin? Um, I think I see phones, and I mean the real test now is this cost of living crisis. It's been since 2012 when when Apple uh, has, you know, risen back to real prominence. Um, We've not had a cost of living crisis like we've got in the UK here at the moment and perhaps in in the US as well. So it will be interesting to see how Apple does now. We think brands are really, really strong. And then when, you know, when it comes to the crunch, are people still going to be buying Apple products over something else when they really, really can't afford it. I mean, people were buying Apple stuff when they couldn't afford it. Now they really can. If you can't, you know, you're going to have Apple or heating this Christmas. Oh, that's a tricky question. Yeah, that's going to be a question that's too uh, tricky for the likes of me. But you did raise a couple of the questions I've also written down here. So I don't think of Apple as a tech company so much as a consumer products company, uh, which is apparently how Buffett thinks about it, according to people that are not him. But he does... So one of the strong things about Apple, and I think he's right about this, is the fact that it has a very loyal and committed following. And I guess we'll see. Uh, We will see exactly how much, if they're a consumer products company, they're a staple, i.e. something that will enjoy steady demand and people will continue to buy it roughly at whatever um, rate they ordinarily do, or whether it's something like a consumer discretionary, which is a kind of nice to have, but they'll probably live without, or they'll miss an iPhone cycle out, or they'll um go somewhere else while they uh while the prices are high and times are a bit tight and so on so i think it'll be interesting to see on that my instinct is it behaves a lot more like a discretionary uh, for what it's worth mm. but i could be wrong about that um and i'm already quite deep into discretionaries at the moment because in anticipation of these sorts of things i've seen some prices coming down on them um as we start getting noises about lower consumer spending so uh we'll see i suppose yeah, interesting to hear uh, others' opinions. Uh, Steve and I are uh, quite vocal on the Discord. We've, we've not particularly loved Apple for a while, so we're maybe not the best people to have an opinion on it. We, we've long thought um, the sort of debt for buybacks, especially when Apple was at 
high high share prices. I think we were in PEs of thirty at the time. Felt silly to us at times, but I mean, we're we're not Warren Buffett, and uh, uh, sometimes you've got to defer to greatness. And I guess uh, that's what we're well, that's what we're doing here. But interested to hear what you guys think. I know there's a lot of Apple fans out there, but objectively looking at the stock now, is it something you're you're buying? It's down about fifty. I think it's at fifteen or eighteen percent this this year today. Is it, Steve? It's yes, yeah, trading around eighteen percent lower. It's about one four seven at the time we're kind of uh, recording this. I was trying to work out where I would like it, and I did some quick maths that I won't bother sharing here. But I came out at about one thirty to one three five was where I would be interested. Yeah, I've never done it, but I, I, in my head I had 125 just mm-hmm. off the top of my head and, and that's, that's with very little maths other than me sort of like looking at the end, looking at the income number and looking at the sort of where I think that PE should be for a company of that kind of size growing at that kind of speed and then you've got to factor in some kind of premium because it's, you know, one of the biggest and best brands uh, arguably out there. Yeah, and if they're pushing for net cash neutral, you can take that PE ratio seriously, uh, from what mm. I see of it. The, the reason I would normally not do that on a company this mature is there'd be quite a lot of debt kicking around there, which you would need to lump back on top of the market cap. So something like a Verizon, which I owned until quite recently, trades at a very, very low PE, but you need to find a way of factoring in the fact that a lot of your earnings is going to be used to pay down debt uh, in the near future. And that's okay. It can absolutely still be a bargain, but you need to be aware of that. Apple, I think, aiming at net cash neutrality, or, or Google aiming at net cash positive at the moment, uh, you can take those PEs, I think, probably as more representative of what's uh, kind of going on there in terms of those businesses. Okay, should we talk about some stocks we do like, Steve? Yes, can I just get a drink? I've run out of drink and I've got so much to say. Yep, go for it. I was going to say, you've refilled your stupidly small glass and now we can... <laughs> yes! Okay, so my stock this week is uh, a company called Endeavor Mining, and it's a pure coincidence that we happen to be recording this show on the day that Sven Carlin launched his gold mining video, which I think both of us have seen already, and both of us were pretty impressed by, to be honest. We really like Sven when he's talking about mining companies, gold mining companies, all these kinds of things. Uh, But yeah, my company's Endeavor Mining. It's listed on the FTSE because I'm looking at things based in the UK at the moment because I'm convinced there must be something there. Uh, quick overview of what this company does then. Basically, it owns and it operates a bunch of gold mines across Africa. It owns sort of mostly 90% of these. The others are 10% owned by whatever government the mine's located, uh, of the country the mine's located in. So that might be Burkina Faso. It might be Sierra Leone. You get the general idea here. Um, mining companies, they tend to produce fairly undifferentiated products, i.e. it's gold. Who cares where it was mined and that kind of thing. And that means that what matters is how cheap you can get it out the ground and how efficiently you can get it to wherever it's going. Uh, You're unlikely to have any kind of brand power here, basically. So uh, what makes a good company is one that can find it cheap. Um, Endeavor has six major mines, according to its website anyway, and most of them have a life of 10 years or so more still to run. They're busy pulling out gold. I tried to work out their average cost by adding up the amount they were going to get out of each of them and then weighting them by their cost and then uh, computing an average. And I got to about $887 an ounce. So for context, that's uh, Newmonts, which is a uh, Australia-based um, operation, I think. Pulls it out at around 1050 Barrick, which has more um, in the way of African exposure, around 970 an ounce. So... Endeavour a little bit under that. And the gold price is currently around 1800 which is where it's been kicking out around for a little while here. Company's balance sheet on this nice low-cost producer that I found you has a quick ratio of 1.05, so it's higher than 1, which is what you're wanting to see here. Their quick assets can cover their liabilities fairly well. It's a high capex kind of business, so you want that kind of coverage to make sure that you're able to kind of meet your expenditures when the time comes. Market cap on this is just under $5 billion. It's around $4.5 billion actually, at the time I'm writing this now. It was around $5 billion at the time I started writing it. Uh, and they're anticipating, according to the kind of numbers for this year, times their extraction cost at current prices, around $1.2 billion in operating cash flows. Uh, there, here's a bit of a red flag, if you like these kinds of red flags. Their number of shares has been going up uh, lately. Hmm. It's increased by about 155% uh, over the last, I think, 10 years or so. Mm. Their revenues have gone up by 339%, so we tend to take the view that's probably okay. Uh, Some sort of share dilution here. And this is the kind of thing that helps keep that debt under control uh, and keep their quick ratio in um, fairly good order here. 
Risks with this, I've written down two, uh, and I mainly only really believe in one of them, uh, to be honest. But here's risk number one. Uh, political situation, we are located in Africa. Africa can often be politically unstable, and it's not particularly known for uh, being a safe place to mine things versus, say, Australia, uh, where you find other kind of gold mines. So there's risks around those sorts of things. Uh, I don't have any specific reason for thinking that either Burkina Faso, Sierra Leone or anywhere that these are located has any imminent trouble coming, but it's always there and it's always more likely than it is uh, in some other places. The other major risk is that they don't have any pricing power or control over the cost of what they sell. Um, I think there's a bit of offsetting uh, going on here. So if the gold price goes down, we make less money, very roughly. I said 1.2 billion in operating cash flows. That's assuming an 1800 price of gold. Uh, $1,500, uh, that goes down to $826 million. That's roughly where it's been in the last 10 years, uh, for what it's worth, around the sort of 1500 mark. Uh, and at 1000 it goes down to $152 million in operating cash flows. That's lower than it's been in the last 10 years, but that's, your kinda, that's my kind of worst-case scenario. The way people are busy printing money and trying to manage their currencies and so on, over time, I don't think the gold price is going back down there anytime soon. Uh, but that's Endeavour Mining. Um, you like miners, Steve. Any interest in this? It does sound quite interesting, to be honest. Uh, one of the things I would add into your sort of like risks or things to watch sort of column is uh, the grades of the gold. Mm. Uh, if the grades of the gold start to slip, you're going to see that uh, average price um, start to creep up. So one of the one of the things with smaller miners that you see quite quickly is. Um, that you don't see with the bigger miners because the bigger miners are very process driven. Uh, they uh, approach nearly, you know, or, well, depending on the type of mine, but if they're looking for a certain type of mine. They have a process driven approach to it, so they can keep their uh, their extraction costs pretty much similar all the time. With companies like Endeavor, you've got to look at their extraction costs. So you would imagine that being in Africa, that their staff costs are lower. But the uh, the terrain is obviously more treacherous, so it's difficult to. Uh, that's probably where their extraction costs are coming from. Probably a lack of power as well. At some point, I used to remember, even like jurisdictions like South Africa used to complain that they essentially had to turn their mines off during peak demand because uh, the city needed the power. Um, <laughs> but yeah, there's. Uh, it sounds like an interesting company. I, I, uh, you'll have to send me some information, about Stephen. I'll. I'll take a look. One of the things uh, you did ask me was about, I guess this was where you asked me about uh, uh, country ownership. Yep. And that, uh, i just keep quickly tell you where that comes from, uh, just in case you, you'd never come across mm. it before or for the people at home. Uh, so in America, they used to have Standard Oil. Standard Oil was a massive oil conglomerate, the, the biggest oil conglomerate going. And they used to set the price of, of oil. Uh, they got too big. The Americans split it into seven companies. They called it the Seven Sisters. The Seven Sisters still used to get together and set the price of oil. The problem was is that America wasn't producing that much oil. Places like Russia, places like um, Kuwait, the Saudis, they were producing the oil and they weren't too happy that the Seven Sisters were actually producing the oil, uh, putting a price on the oil. And they thought, well, why can't it be more? And that's basically... The, the story, long story short, of how OPEC was formed and how the shift of power moved from uh, the Seven Sisters and moved into, uh, well, into the Middle East, essentially, Middle East and Russia, and, uh, and well, and Canada and Venezuela as well, of all the places, um, oil-rich places. But, yeah, really, uh, really interesting, uh, really interesting kind of back backstory to, to commodities there. But that tends to be how you got sort of national interest, national ownership in it, because the Seven Sisters basically owned the oil wells all over the world. And countries started to say, well, hang on a second, we don't want America dictating the price of our commodity. So they, they slowly started to take ownership or nationalise entirely the mines, and which is, you know, the downfall of uh, America's big oil companies and, and how it got more sort of broadly spread out across the world, companies like Aramco um, and things like mm. that. So, yeah, there's my interesting tidbit for you, Steve. That was my interesting history commodity knowledge. Yeah, so for context, um, I was looking at these and I saw that they tend to own 85-90% of the uh, mines that they're operating and the others, the, the rest of that tends to be owned by the government um, of whatever country they're in I mentioned. I asked Steve whether this was a normal thing, and he said sort of yes for if it's in somewhere like Africa, less so if it's in somewhere like Australia, uh, I think was what you were uh, kind of telling me there. I wondered whether this might help shore it up against political instability a bit, because 
Um, if your government owns 10% of your mind, they're less likely to insist you have to shut it down. But um, I, I wasn't hanging too much on that thought after what you told me. Well, uh, the commodity traders will tell you if you ask them um, that they would absolutely never give anybody a kickback for uh, the mines that are coming out of their... Um, you know, for the the materials that they're mining out of the mine. But one way of not having to give somebody a kickback is giving somebody a genuine share and stake in the mine. Mm -hmm. um, probably and a kickback. Let's not lie to each other. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, oh, uh, two and uh, something percent dividend yield uh, on this. <laughs> uh, if you're, if you're kind you're of Paul. Yeah, Paul. Um, so there you are. That's uh, the stock I was going to talk about last week, actually, but um, we didn't get around to it that time. Steve, you had one as well. What's yours? Uh, so mine is uh, a, a company in a completely different market. So we're going uh, quite tech heavy here. And I'm, I'm sorry to tell you, I'm going to have to probably spin you a yarn about what exactly this company does, because it took me a long time to understand it. And uh, and it's quite a tricky business, but uh, here goes. My company has a, a quite a bit richer valuation than Steve's. Um, so I'll get that out of the way sooner for anybody who fancies this being a 51 minute show rather than uh, probably a 60 minute show. So this one trades at a PE of around 60 and it's a relatively Yum. slow growing company. So um, yeah, goodbye and we'll see you next week to mm. uh, everybody who is uh, is leaving. Um, it's not the Azure, so, is it? <laughs> so <laughs> Cadence Design, 42 billion uh, market cap. Uh, three billion of sales, of which about six hundred and seventy million of it is profits. Uh, up margin, gross margin, net margin, all on a on a long term trend upwards uh, over the last ten years. Uh, in the low thirties uh, for sales to free cash flow margin. Um, Revenue is going about twelve to sort of fourteen percent per year. And I, I, I had to dig around for the customer churn figure, and all I can get is is a statement from them that it's pretty much zero. Uh, so Cadence operates in the EDA um, category. It's electronic design automation. They're, they're a duopoly in this market and they're an oligopoly in the simulation market, which they operate in. Uh, so this is a position it shares with Synopsys for EDA and with Dissot Systems, a French company for the simulation uh, style. Ansys does a little bit of this as well. I don't know if that's a company you've ever come across before, Steve. Uh, yes, I have heard of them. Yes, Antis is one of those another hidden giant uh, American companies which has pretty pretty high margins. What was the other uh, one in that oligopoly you mentioned? Disso. It's spelled like Dassault. Yeah, I thought I recognised that, and I've never been sure how mm. you pronounce that, but I've always called it Dassault. Um, but yeah, I recognise yeah. that one too. Cool. So, um, Cadence's customers—they're pretty much everybody who is uh, who is in chip industry design. So we're talking about your Intels, your Microns, your NVIDIAs, your AMDs, and now obviously we know Apples, Amazons, Googles, Microsofts. Uh, Amazon's a particularly interesting one because they actually bought a chip engineering firm um, just a couple of years ago, and they've actually 10Xed the headcount in terms of engineering. Uh, so that, that's pretty crazy. So of the top 10 most valuable companies in the world, Steve, eight of them designed their own silicon. Now I know you know the answer to this because I quizzed you on it last week, but can you remember who they were? Well, I can remember one of them because I should have got it last week and I didn't get it last week. Tell me. Uh, the one I should have got and didn't get is Berkshire Hathaway, I think. Mm -hmm. um, and the other one I now can't remember. Um, is it NVIDIA? It's Aramco. Uh, of course it is, yeah. Yes, the oil company don't have much use for chips. Mm. Um, so... I guess it's important that we go over uh, what these things are and why they're important to you, really. So um, EDA is like the hidden driver of the tech economy. So think of it as like being like computer-aided design, but for electronics and for circuit boards. So it's another tool in the chip maker's belt which allows uh, Moore's Law to function. So like ASML, I think this is probably one of the, the greatest companies that you've never heard of, uh, at least in the industry, in an industry that is the greatest industry that you've never heard of. So at the moment, the EDA market brings in about $10 billion in revenue. The chip industry is about 50 times that size, uh, which is before you adding things like the smartphone market, the PC market, the car market, which have shown that, you know, they can't function without chips. Um, this has led to companies like Tesla and now Ford and GM, which is like the craziest thing anyone ever told me. Uh, they're now moving into chip design themselves. But this is a good thing for them because this means they're not getting, you know, bogged down waiting for a generic product. Uh, they can get a, a highly specialized product and, and order it in the quantities that they need. 
so what's good about this company? Um, in chip making, there there isn't a GitHub where you can just go and, and, and nick the code that you need for your product. Everything's in what's called an IP block. So most chips start in the same way. Uh, you need to license some third-party tech, which is essentially how ARM operates in the UK, if you've if you've ever wondered how, how that works. Um, and all of these IP blocks are built into Caden, so it makes it really easy for the chip designer to focus on the distinct part of the chip uh, and build the rest of it, kind of like Lego. So uh, there's no point reinventing how uh, USB works. You might as well just license the tech and, and let the customer plug it in, you know, how he knows and, and get it to operate. Um, so the best part of all these new companies that are entering the market, they have literally no IP to fall back on. Uh, your Intels, your AMDs, your NVIDIAs, they've been doing this a while. They have their own tech for a lot of stuff. Your Googles, your Amazons, they don't. They have to buy it. They have to license it. And that all comes out of Cadence. So another feature of the product is emulation and simulation. So companies can use Cadence to simulate how the chip would perform in the real world. So this is before you actually go to making masks, which are multi-millions of dollars and actually having to produce the chip to see how it works. You can actually trial it within the software. So think of it how like Formula One teams are all constantly tinkering the engines before they actually get into the production of it. You can use Cadence in like a similar way. Emulation is a little bit different, so it allows the engineers to show the software developers how the chip runs, and this allows them to create like the required software to run the chip without, again, having access to the physical product. So there's no downtime uh, when you're using something like Cadence. Um, so Cadence was probably one of the original software as a service companies. Uh, I was reading a story online of the CEO taking a trip to China to try and sell it to some emerging, uh, emerging chip companies. And he walked past a software store and saw his multi-thousand dollar, um, software at the time was selling for $20 <laughs> on a, like a knockoff CD. Um, he noticed that, um, essentially all the customers would wait right until the end of Cadence's fiscal quarters. And then they would beat the salesman down on price to to such a degree that you know it, it just had to change. It just wasn't the wasn't the right metric for them. So uh, revenue growth at the company is actually increasing now because of all the market entries that we're having. So sales were uh, growing in the mid eight to ten percent uh, a couple of years ago, and we're now in the low teens. So that's actually faster than the uh, the market itself, which is only growing at about eight percent. And so as the semi industry continues to grow and this shortage unravels, this is this is a picks and shovels sort of play in the industry. I've got a couple of bear cases for you. I was going to spoil it, but uh, so market cyclicality uh, is the biggest issue in semis. We haven't really experienced it uh, in quite a while as, as, as fairly newish investors, I guess, but it tends to be when the chips are out of favor, um, you would need less engineers and that would mean less sales for cadence. But actually, this has proven to be pretty false. So engineers, we've found that they're the lifeblood of the industry. So through 2013 to 2017, uh, there was a glut of M&A uh, and consolidation. And through that period, cadence's sales grew pretty handily. It seemed like everybody had kept their engineers. And uh, the beauty of this, and you get in all the positives of, of a chip maker, without the cyclicality. So engineers are the lifeblood of the chip industry and you cut those seats last. If you're getting rid of engineers, you're going bust. Mm -hmm. So I've got a couple of other bear cases for you. Apple, Amazon, and Google being the kings of software. There is a fear that they'll just build their own version of Cadence's EDA. And it's a possibility. Um, Google recently uh, had the TensorFlow chip and they released a lot of the software they used to make that. They released it open, for, uh, open source and um, free to everybody to use. Generally, though, what I've found is chip makers love Cadence. Um, designing a high-end chip costs a company around $500 million, according to McKinsey, and the semi-industry is about $500 billion. And the EDA uh, market as a whole is only $10 billion. So that's like a little tax. It's not a huge pain point. It's not a huge spend uh, in comparison to the actual scale of the market. So Cadence and Synopsis are quite cagey with their pricing. Um, and this is because, really, there's only two big players in the EDA market, which means antitrust could be a real problem down the line if, if uh, you know, if the Senate was to find out that this this market exists. Um, last sort of bear case for you, Steve. R and D spend is about thirty five percent of revenue, and this is because Moore's law applies to software as much as it does to design and manufacture. So Kins Kins has to spend this to keep up. Is this a company that would interest you, Steve? Yes, uh, at the moment. And that last point picks up on something I was going to ask you about, actually. So you talked about an R&D spend. And one of the things that I was trying to puzzle out in my head as I put the picture together 
is whether this this so this sounds salesforcey uh, to me. You've got a top line that's growing at an acceptable rate, but not an amazing rate, and a price to bottom line earnings that's quite high. Uh, so you said P of around sixty, I think. That's right. Yep. Yeah, and growing at a sort of low double digits uh, revenue-wise. And that sounds a lot like Salesforce. A big price multiple um, and sort of medium-ish revenue growth. Is that because we're needing to add back some of these R&D costs one way or another? I think the potential of the pricing is how it is, you know, the potential of the cash flows is how it's currently priced. Mm. But I would be very careful adding back the cash flows. Um, with something like Salesforce, if they were to cut their R&D spending, you know, in half or, or even cut two thirds of it down, you could sense that uh, Salesforce would be able to keep quite a high market share and, you know, perhaps maybe not grow as fast as they are, but they'd be able to maintain what they have. With Cadence, that's that's not the case. Um, basically, as we move to smaller and smaller chips, Cadence has to be able to perform that function in the software. So if Cadence was to get hung up in the same way that Intel's getting hung up on chips that you know other chip makers can already make smaller and, and potentially better versions of, that would be the death of Cadence. So that's the issue for me is that I think at the moment it's just a little bit outside of the kind of ranges that I'd want to pay for it because the growth isn't there. But in mm. if you if you had a, a long sort of eight to ten year outlook on something, I think this is a pretty interesting stop for you. You compared this to ASML, which we always call the kind of picks and shovels play on semiconductors in general, right? Um, they, as far as I can see, aren't strictly a monopoly but we think of them as the only major lithography um outfit and you mentioned that with cadence we're in a duopoly and uh, an oligopoly in a couple of industries uh there do any of the others interest you here at all the other one that interests me in the space is obviously synopsis Mm. i think that's uh they're a little bit they they do a little bit more than um in in revenue than than cadence um they're a, a pretty much a bigger outfit but they are also as expensive mm-hmm. um so it's not a company you're going to get you're going to get cheaply i guess the i mean i had a look at this sale before i came online to see what um what the sort of prices on that is as well and and that's not that's not a cheap company either so i i think this is one of those kind of areas at the moment where the market thinks that you know the rail players in, in this sector deserve a premium, and they're they're certainly applying it to these these sort of companies. The market leaders in the semiconductor space have have never been cheap, or are very rarely cheap. And I think this is just another one to add to that pile. I think you're right about that. I mean, I, you're when you're looking around for kind of risks associated with this, and you point out cyclicality. I guess it's going to be true of most things. Uh, it's probably worth pointing it out in the case of semiconductors because occasionally you hear people saying semiconductors are no longer cyclical because they're in so much stuff, and it's definitely true that they're in loads of stuff. That doesn't make them acyclical uh, for what it's worth. But the the real risk, I guess, is that you end up paying prices for stocks that imply that they're not uh, um, cyclical in a certain way. Because, yeah, things will come and things will go, but in general, the number of semiconductors is going to go up in the world. Um, I was doing a quick bit of Googling while you were um, uh, going through that and looking for, well, what turned into basically an auction, as far as I can see. I was trying to work out how many semiconductors there are on a modern car. Uh, Do you have a number in mind for how many you think there are? Gosh, no, I I would imagine. I'm going to go with 1,000. Is my anywhere near... Well, you might be. It depends on exactly which thing I look at. Um, the, the correct answer is anywhere from a couple of hundred, uh, according to one source. To, uh, the BBC estimates that there's somewhere between uh, 1,500 and 3,000 uh, semiconductors wow. on a car. And, I mean, you can sort of see where, where they show up, right? They show up in things like airbags, emissions control, emergency braking, parking sensors, basically anything that somehow measures something or responds to something. Uh, so that's not all always kind of... Uh, complicated or fancy uh, chips in any particular way but um, especially with EVs uh, and so on actually more and more and more stuff um, needing chips so this market's growing and I guess this is a really interesting way of trying to get a bit of that I, I would agree. I guess the only thing that we should really add on to the end of this is that Cadence doesn't pay a dividend. So that was what I was going to ask, politics. and I was going to assume it didn't. I'm also going to assume it's not really buying back shares either, because it has a big R&D spend and it's trying to get ahead of things. 
rather than returning capital. I could be wrong here, and I can see you typing, so I'm going to try and fill a bit longer to give you a chance to find out. Yes, it, it is buying back shares. I was, oh. I was just checking that it still is. It had authorised in August to buy back about a billion uh, dollars worth of shares this year. Um, so that'll give you a nice little bump along. Mm, um, on a market it, cap of I, which, sorry, 40, did you say? Uh, 40, the uh, market cap is 42 billion. 42. So that's going to give you a little bump along. Although, they're, yeah. they're, I'm just looking through this now, they've actually only been buying small amounts. So, uh-huh. uh, 110 million in the third quarter. So it's not a, they're, they're not... Uh, Discretionary buying they, back. Yeah, perhaps. Mm, I like that. Okay, great. Well, that's us for this week. Hopefully Paul will be back with us next time. But meanwhile, uh, thank you all so very much for listening. It's been lovely chatting with you. I've been Steve W. This has been Steve D. Do leave us a nice review somewhere. Ask us a question. We're always interested in hearing them. And we'll see you next time.